I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 7. This is part two of our um, passage here from 7, 9 through 17 on the church triumphant. So we will focus on verses 13 through 17, but I'll be reading through the whole passage once again. And really, this, this chapter is answering questions for us. It's answering some important questions. How does the church militant become the church triumphant? Remember, the church militant is just the church on earth, the church that is at war with evil. We, we recognize there's two parallel kingdoms being built right now. You have the kingdom of God, but at the same time, there's a kingdom of evil that is fighting and warring against the kingdom of God until Christ comes again to put an end fully and finally to that kingdom of Satan. Right? Satan has been defeated on the cross, and yet he still is stirring up strife and tension and deceit. Right? But he cannot deceive the nations from, being, uh, from hearing the proclamation of the gospel. And so you have this question, right? How does the church militant become the church triumphant? How does our experience on earth translate to our experience in heaven? What's the relationship between the two? And so last week we looked at uh, the first two points in our outline, the salvation of the church triumphant in verses 9 and 10, and the God of the church triumphant in verses 11 and 12. And we noted several allusions last week to, um, to the exodus out of Egypt, the Israelites being rescued out of their bondage to slavery, um, and, and then their preservation and suffering in the wilderness. And there's that, there's that sort of mysterious relationship there where they've been saved, they've been rescued, and yet they're brought into a place of more suffering. They're brought into a place of, of temptation. They face tr- more trials. So that some of them began grumbling and wanted to go back into slavery. At least there they, they were fed. And they started complaining. And so they... They grumbled against God, and God ultimately provided them manna, but he preserved and protected them throughout that generation. And, and we, we noted how John here is comparing, really, the, the vision John is receiving and then telling is, is reminiscing upon that, or at least alluding to that idea and saying it's the same thing for us today, right? In this present age, we are suffering in the wilderness. We have been rescued from our sins, Satan has been defeated upon the cross. We've been adopted as children of God, and yet we aren't home. We still struggle. We still suffer. We're still in this wandering period of time, this wilderness, prone to wander. And so in heaven, everything that contributes to your suffering now will be used by God to magnify your enjoyment of his glory and blessings. That's really where we left off last week that everything that you experience now will have an impact. All of that suffering is related to the time in heaven, to your church triumphant, whether it's to magnify your understanding of his glory, to magnify your experience of joy in the elimination of evil from your life. So the church triumphant, which refers to the saints in glory, will celebrate the victory of the Lamb who saved us for all eternity. So this theme continues in the next two points as well. 
So before we read the passage, let's ask the Lord for his help in understanding it. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the privilege of sitting under its teaching, for continuing to be challenged by these truths. Lord, and we ask that you would give us eyes to see, give us ears to hear, and hearts to believe this truth, that whatever trials or sufferings we experience now in this life, we would, rec- we would face them with confidence, even face them with joy, knowing of the prize that awaits, the reward that awaits in eternity. Lord, give us strength to endure. Help us to rely upon you by faith. Even now, as we sit under the teaching of your word, speak to us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So read with me Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 through 17. After this, I looked and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God saying, amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever, amen. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these, clothed in white robes, and from from where have they come? I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the, of the throne will be their shepherd. And he will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Amen. This is God's holy word. So these verses make plain for us uh, that the great multitude are standing before the throne because of the salvation that Christ accomplished on the cross. Notice that in verses 13 and 14. It's because they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. That's a reference very clearly to the death of Christ, right? The final sacrifice This is a picture here in verses 13 and 14 of the perseverance of the church triumphant. This is your next point in your outline. The third point is the perseverance of the church triumphant, but it's a perseverance that has already been accomplished for these saints. And this is a picture of glory. This is a picture of them coming out of the great tribulation. They have arrived at home, and it's meant to give us in this present age hope that we will be in that number, that we are counted among them. And so they are coming out of the great tribulation. Notice the present participle, coming, right? It's a present tense participle. This has already begun to occur in the time John was writing Revelation. I believe that's the proper way to understand this is that 
saints are coming out of the great tribulation as they die and enter into glory. Um, Jews and Gentiles were already experiencing the great tribulation and entering into their triumphant glory. This great tribulation is, is not reserved for a brief period just prior to Christ's return. It occurs throughout this present age, as all of us can attest. Right? We all suffer. We all experience trials and tribulation. So it occurs throughout this present age. <clears throat> it began with the suffering of Christ and continues as long as those who are united to Christ continue to suffer. So which is to say we will experience tribulation until Jesus returns to finally put an end to it. Right? That should be our expectation. Tribulation is, is a common theme in the New Testament. Paul encouraged the Thessalonians that they should feel privileged to suffer for the kingdom of God, knowing that he will bring righteous judgment upon those who afflict them. And that they could have confidence that God would bring vengeance so that they could, they could suffer and feel privileged to suffer for the kingdom of God. Paul tells Timothy that in the last days, there will come times of difficulty. As people become lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. That's 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 and following. So these are the last days that we're living in. There are several references. In fact, in Sunday school, we talked a little bit about that, this idea that this whole category can be, term, be called the last days. That doesn't mean we've arrived at the last day. There's still a future day that Christ is, when Christ returns, but we are presently in the last days. The signs of the times that we are anticipating are presently being seen. We can witness them, and they've been seen throughout this present age. These are being fulfilled. Christianity will grow increasingly countercultural in the last days. And, and you see that. We do currently see that in America. Other parts of the globe are, are further along than we are, right? And other nations have risen and fallen throughout the church age that have gone through the same kind of cycle. So Greg Bill says this, the tribulation has begun in the present age and will be intensified, intensified in its severity at the end of history. So when we're talking about the Great Tribulation, it's a, it's a broader category. It's not just a very brief period at the end of this age. It is taking place now, but we can see an increase in that intensity. And that's to be seen in Revelation, as we see from the seals that are opened, that are only affecting partial, that are having a partial impact upon the earth, and then we'll get to the trumpets that are having a, a greater devastating impact upon the earth. That's, but it doesn't mean that the judgment was not happening under the seals. It just is, it's, it's happening in, in portions, right? It's, in, it's illustrating the idea that we are in the great tribulation and it's in a building. It's a building tribulation. Right? Our experience in history follows this basic model of the New Testament teaching on the last days. So while tribulation will continue to increase, so does the growth of the church. It, tribulation increases, but so does the church. And by that, I don't mean that the church will grow in its cultural influence. Again, refer to Sunday school if you were here. We talked about that idea that, that 
we aren't um, that that really uh, the the church will or postmillennialism teaches that that the church will have a greater and greater impact upon the culture. It's just the general teaching of postmillennialism that that the new the picture of heaven is is actually happening on earth. It's beginning to grow increasingly in that direction. And, and so sometimes postmillennial is, is referred to as optimistic because it sees a great impact upon the culture taking place. And then amillennialism or even dispensationalism is seen as pessimistic because it views the church as really not necessarily having a cultural impact, right? a broader reaching impact upon the culture. But it's really both. We can be optimistic about this, the church being strengthened and growing, and yet we recognize that the, the culture is still given over to the kingdom of evil. And so we'll not have the kind of impact we are looking for until we reach glory. Okay, so when I say that the church is growing, what I mean is that the number belonging to the invisible church will continue to grow in the face of growing hostility. As tribulation increases, it's not going to thwart or cut off the growth of the church. It's, the church will never be absent of believers on earth. And we will always be, uh, be fighting against um, uh, sin and the devil and the temptations of this world. And so while the kingdom of God grows, so does the kingdom of evil, but the latter... The kingdom of evil is kept in check by the former. Right? The kingdom of evil is subject to the kingdom of God. In other words, Christ will continue to build his church, his church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against her. So that means we should expect tribulation to characterize the believer's entire wilderness journey. Right? This is consistent with what we talked about last week all the way from justification to glorification, we can expect suffering. It's our common experience in this fallen world that lives in rebellion against its maker. And so we can also expect that tribulation to increase as the end draws near. So how do we live with hope? That sounds terrifying to some of us. We hear that and we say, yeah, that's depressing. That's not a very encouraging word. Thanks, I'll, I'll go home and expect to suffer more. Well, because these saints are coming out of the great tribulation, we have hope. They have entered into their rest. They have already persevered because they have washed their robes in the blood of the Lamb. They entered into glory because they identified themselves with the Lamb who was slain. And so note, note the verb there, um, washed. They have washed their robes. That's in the active voice. Maybe what you anticipate is a passive voice, and let me explain what that means. Uh, active voice is they have washed their robes. The passive voice would be their robes have been washed. There are other passages that use language like that, and we'll look at one or two later on but their robes have been washed would be passive. It means I'm not doing anything to the garment. And the garment is taken from me, washed, and then given back to me. 
Their robes have been washed, but this is an active voice. They are washing their robes, or they have washed their robes in the blood of the Lamb. What this implies is our own role in the process of our salvation, that we are participating in that. And first of all, what that means is that we have a, a personal faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and a, a personal repentance. They are required. We must personally trust in the cleansing power of the blood of Christ. And then the fruit of that conversion is our obedience, our active obedience. And the Apostle Peter teaches that the, the blood of the Lamb is what ransomed us from our former futile ways. You were living according to the world. Now you've been ransomed from that. Your former ways have been, you've been ransomed. You've been bought by the blood of the Lamb. Peter says that in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 18 through 19. So that implies a transformation. Uh, one commentary, Rezegui, puts it this way. He says, although the lamb's blood cleanses their robes, the saints play an active role by following the way of the lamb. It's the blood itself that's got the cleansing power. It's not the scrubbing, right? They have washed their robes in the blood of the lamb. It's not like I'm scrubbing this one really hard and it's, if I can scrub it just hard enough, I'll get it white. No, in fact, the, the, the word here for white we'll see later on is, is the same word that is translated bleached in, in the Gospels. It's a, it's, a kind of, it's a kind of cleansing that you can't do in your own strength. I just, I love the imagery here, but listen to what Sinclair Ferguson, or actually, before I get there, um, you know, Resigui said, although the lamb's blood cleanses their robes, the saints play an active role by following the way of the lamb. And so I would say this, the hymn, Trust and Obey, is a valid summary of the Christian life. Trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus than to trust and obey. It involves both, active obedience, active trusting. We need to avoid the error of legalism, which is obedience to the law saves us, and we need to avoid the error of antinomianism, which is that the law no longer applies to the believer. The implication of persevering, the perseverance of the church triumphant, it means to be persistent in the midst of hardship, to persist through trials. So Peter says it like this in 1 Peter chapter 1. He says, Elect exiles of the dispersion according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. Notice there what the, the, the sanctification of the, of the Spirit is for obedience and the sprinkling with his blood. And so Sinclair Ferguson comments on that verse in this way. He says, Peter's subliminal logic is this. As you face life with all its trials, do not lose sight of who you are and what you are for. Be clear about this and you will make progress. Forget this and you will flounder and fall. The reason, knowing whose you are, knowing who you are, 
and what you are for settles basic issues about how you live. So again, the cleansing power is in the blood of the lamb. Believers will get through the tribulation by trusting in Christ to continue to preserve them, not by trusting in their obedience. You trust in Christ and what he has accomplished for you and in you. So Greg Bill notes the connection here between with Daniel chapters 11 and 12, and specifically Daniel 11.35 says that wise believers will endure persecution. And then he says this, You'll in, they'll endure persecution so that they may be refined, purified, and made white until the time of the end, for it still awaits the appointed time. Notice there, the idea is you will endure persecution in order to refine, purify, and make you white. Tribulation is part of God's means of sanctifying his people. It's part of how he's growing us, is by allowing us to suffer. And that's hard to understand, and it's hard to make sense of in the midst of suffering, and yet that is the reality. Again, I I alluded to this already, but the same words, made them white, is found in Mark 9, verse 3, regarding the transfiguration of Jesus whose clothing became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. The word bleach is the same word that's used here in Revelation as made them white. And so it's a color that we cannot manufacture. We cannot obtain the degree of purity that this color exhibits in, its, in our own strength. We can't scrub hard enough to make our clothing white enough. And only those who have been enabled by the Holy Spirit will wash their robes and enter into the blessings of heaven. That's what Revelation twenty two fourteen promises. So white garments are, are worn by those who celebrated festivals in Scripture. Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verse 8 references that. Therefore, all who enter heaven coming out of the great tribulation will celebrate the victory of the Lamb. That's part of the festival that they're celebrating is his victory on their behalf. Well, let's dig a little deeper into this idea of clothing. I think it's an important theme in Scripture. It's a redemptive theme throughout, beginning in Genesis. And there's frequent instruction for, for garments to be washed in order to be purified from some defilement. So the purification that these saints received signified their white robes, or signified by their white robes, is what makes them acceptable before the throne of God in heaven. If they were not in their white robes, they would not be acceptable before the throne. And if they came in their filthy garments, they would have been thrown out, as the parable of the wedding feast illustrates. So they had to be different. They had to be entirely transformed. They had to, be, they had to come before the throne in white robes. But think about this theme now. Adam and Eve were naked and without shame, until they fell into sin, and then they sought cover. They attempted to hide their shame with pitiful fig leaves. But only God could provide sufficient covering, and he does so in chapter 3, verse 21. The defilement of sin is oftentimes described as covering humanity-like clothing. In Psalm 73, Malachi 2, verse 16. And then at the same time, we see... um, In Isaiah chapter 61, uh, verse 10, 
a picture of salvation portrayed as clothing. I will greatly uh, rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. Uh, Last week, we looked at Ezekiel chapter 16, verse 8, and we didn't read our our portion this week, but but from 16, verse 8, we read this. When I passed by you again and saw you, behold, you were at the age for love, and I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness, and I made my vow to you and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Lord your God, and you became mine. Again, there, a picture of of clothing or a garment as salvation, being covered by God. But I think my favorite portrayal of this reality is in Zechariah chapter 3. Zechariah chapter 3, verses 1 through 5, you have this picture of Joshua the priest dressed in filthy garments as he stood before the Lord. And listen to what we read. Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord has chosen Jerusalem. Rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments, and the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, Let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments, and the angel of the Lord was standing by. So Satan stood by Joshua, who was standing in filthy garments, really, we could say, before the throne of God or before his judgment seat. Satan stood by, ready to accuse him. And as long as Joshua remained as he was, Satan's accusations were valid. Instead of rejecting Joshua and casting him out, the Lord rebuked Satan for bringing an accusation against one of his elect. And the angel of the Lord commanded Joshua's filthy garments to be removed. And this now is in the past tense or in a passive voice. Those garments are removed from Joshua and he is clothed with pure vestments. His filthy garments were replaced by festive garments. His shame is replaced by joy. And this legal transaction that Joshua experienced has been experienced by every true believer in this present age. We've received that same transaction. We have received Christ's righteousness. He has removed our filth. He has removed our sin. He's thrown it as far as the east is from the west. But we still await consummation to enter into our full enjoyment of that glory. We're not home yet. So Jesus warned his followers, in the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. So you have been washed by the blood of the lamb, which enables you to persevere through suffering by faith, and it's a sure hope of the future outcome that strengthens us for each trial. 
Right? And that hope, that future hope is now portrayed in the latter portion, verses 15 through 17, as the blessings of the church triumphant. And I'm going to only spend a brief time here. But verses 15 through 17 is the blessings of the church triumphant. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. Because of their perseverance and purification, believers will stand before the throne of God, worshiping him day and night. Here they are said to reside in his temple. But later on in chapter 21, verse 22 you read a description of the New Jerusalem, and it is said specifically that there is no temple to be found. So some people have a problem with that. There's a temple represented here. The promise is that they will serve him day and night in his temple, and yet later on the temple's gone. How can this be fulfilled in light of that? Once again, you cannot take prophecy so literally that you miss the big picture. The point here is that these images, it's, it is to say that that heaven is being in the presence of God. Heaven is being with God. And just as the temple portrayed the presence of God in the Old Testament, so in heaven we will always be in his presence. The city of Jerusalem will expand the globe. The whole earth is his throne in eternity. And so it's probable that the emphasis here upon the temple's absence at the end of the book indicates the fact that we no longer have this need for mediation because we will see God face to face. Ezekiel 37 verses uh, 26 through 28 are also alluded to in this passage. And um, God, it says, will set up his sanctuary in their midst forever. So once again, promises that were made to Israel are now fulfilled in the new covenant community, which is made up of a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages. So the picture is saints who have, have suffered through tribulation will now enter into the sheltering presence of God for all eternity. They will no longer suffer. Right? In addition to that, John's revelation alludes to the fulfillment of Isaiah 49, verse 10. Those who have suffered famine, those who have suffered drought, and the scorching heat of the desert will find everlasting relief in heaven. They shall hunger no more. They shall neither thirst anymore. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. Where did they experience all of that? It was in their wilderness wandering. All of that is gone in heaven. Believers can be assured of this because the lamb will be their shepherd. Verse 17, for the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd and he will guide them to springs of living water and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. These promises find their ultimate fulfillment in the shepherd who took upon himself all the essential qualities of a lamb offered himself as the perfect sacrifice, and then rose again to lead his flock to the springs of eternal life. It's the gospel. Right? This shepherd lamb will wipe away every tear of suffering loss that we have had to endure in this life. Those are the blessings that await. And so the description of our eternal dwelling will be elaborated as we continue to work through Revelation. But this is clearly a picture 
of the new heavens and new earth. This is a, a picture of us enjoying the fullness of the glory of God, which people are beginning to enter into as they come out of their tribulation and they enter into that glory. And yet they're still waiting for that final consummation, right? When Christ returns and ushers them into the new heavens and the new earth where they will receive all of these blessings in their fullness. And you can look at those blessings again in Revelation chapter 21, verses one through four. But the blessings found here were also promised by those saints in the seven churches who persevere. If you go back to those seven letters, saints who were said to conquer the temptations of the world, in chapter three, verses four and five, it says they receive white robes. In chapter three, verse 12, they become pillars in God's temple, never to depart from his presence again. Same language there. They're they're now pillars in his temple. It's referencing the fact that they will never be outside of his presence for all eternity. They will be fed by the tree of life, chapter 2, verse 7. They are given the hidden manna, chapter 2, verse 17, so that they will never experience hunger again. These are the promises given to those first century saints. They're the same promises that we have. They're the same promises that give us hope as we face suffering. So the blood of the Lamb has made us acceptable before the throne of God from whom every heavenly blessing flows. And although the lamb is unleashing war upon his enemies as he opens the seals in chapter 6, in chapter 7 we find that the, the consummation of Christ's reign and his reign is characterized by rest from war. And it's a rest that all of his saints enter into. As the church militant perseveres through the spiritual warfare of this life, we anticipate the victory of celebrating the blessings of the church triumphant. And as we gather for worship and as we enjoy peace and unity, even now, even if it's partial, we anticipate the blessings of our final state. We are beginning to be transformed. We are beginning to experience what the Spirit is doing in our hearts because of what Christ has already accomplished for us. But in heaven, all of our present sorrows will be turned to joy. And so we look forward to that day. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this encouragement from your word. We are filled with gratitude for this picture of the church triumphant, reigning in heaven, united to their Savior and Lord, united to the Lamb who was slain on their behalf, and no longer suffering under the challenges and trials of this life. And yet they still await that consummation that will only be fulfilled and satisfied upon Christ's return. Lord, we, we want to join with those saints in worshiping the Lamb who was slain. We want to give him all the praise and glory, even now. And Lord, we want to say, come, come quickly. Bring us to that inheritance that we so long for. In Christ's name we ask it. Amen.